The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So as some of you know, uh, the first week of October has been uh, designated Earth Care Week and um, by the our Buddhist, extended Buddhist community. As I said here a few weeks ago, there was a what we call the International Vipassana Teachers Meeting that happens every three years. Happened this year in June at Spirit Rock. And uh, with a little bit of fanfare, there was this rolled out a scroll in the middle of, we sit in the big cir- concentric circles, and this big scroll that was, uh, I don't know how long it was, 40 feet long, was rolled out in the middle of the whole meeting. And it had uh, some 2,000 signatures of people to this letter to the to the Vipassana teachers requesting uh, that we uh, offer leadership and guidance around climate change and environmental issues of our times. So that got our attention. <laughs> 2,000 people signing a letter like that. And so uh, one of the results of that was we were, the teachers were gonna, all going to, um, the first week of October, uh, do teachings, do events that somehow focused on uh, the issue of climate change or caring for our environment. And uh, so that starts tomorrow. So I'll do the, some of the teachings I do over next week. We'll focus on that Wednesday morning and next Monday. It's still the first week of October. And um, But I thought I would get a head start on the topic uh, this evening. And um, mostly what I want to do is express an appreciation for our environment, natural environment, and stress how its natural environment has been a really integral part of our Buddhist tradition for two and a half thousand years. And um, and there's something uh, many of the teachers in our tradition uh, practice many years, um, decades sometimes, in the woods, in the jungles, in the natural environment and came to love it and came to see that there was some uh, uh, important connection between their practice, between their hearts, uh, their realization, and, and the natural world, being in the natural world. And um, I just came back from teaching a two-week retreat at our new retreat center in Santa Cruz. And for those of you who haven't been there, we have a um, very large kind of picnic deck that's not connected to any buildings, just but it's kind of a deck because it over kind of built out over a sloping hill. And every lunch we would have our lunch there, the staff, and, and it has a spectacular view of this beautiful kind of gorge that goes down in a hill on the other side of the gorge that's all covered with trees, forests, redwood trees, and Douglas fir, and and it's quite a beautiful kind of sight. And I'm so glad that we have it there uh, in. Uh, uh, right as part of the retreat center. We have a small woods of our own, not very big, but small, and, and we've been putting in trails so people can walk in a little wood. I mean, the whole property is two and a half acres, uh, 2.8 acres. So with our parking lot and building and all that, our, our own wood is not that big, but enough to put trails in. And, and uh, I, I like it that we have this connection. I spent uh, three years of my life uh, practicing at Tassajara, Zen monastery down in the Big Sur coast, uh, deep in the Las Padres National Wilderness. And uh, the Zen training was very important for me, but, uh, and it was also very important that that training 
that living, that life, was three years in the wilderness. It's quite remote down there. <clears throat> and I spent a lot of time um, away from the few buildings that are Tosahara, uh, walking the trails, walking in the river, up the river, down the river, um, just kind of living kind of close to that natural environment. And it, I feel it was a very important part of um, my own training and how I was changed by the practice and and um, in some of the... Um, you know, I found that in, the, in, in, in relationship to nature, there was a feelings or understandings, sensibility that arose that, um, among other things, changed my relationship to myself. And I think that's where many Buddhists uh, feel the strong connection with nature is when the feelings of nature, uh, connection to nature, uh, helps us to break down some feeling of separation from nature or some feeling of being somehow tightly um, bound up in uh, selfishness or self-concern or self-identity. And there's something about being in the nature that um, can lessen that quite a bit. Um, as probably many of you realize, have known, have probably had experience of <clears throat> having uh, things that were extremely important for you, living in an urban life. But as soon as you went uh, to a park or went to the beach or went to the mountains or went for hiking, that um, some of those concerns seem to recede from importance. And, um, and even sometimes you wonder, what was I thinking? So I want to tell you a story <clears throat> from the time of the Buddha, which I find kind of touching. And, um, and perhaps ask you as part of this, uh, why you think this, um, you know, why this particular teaching that um, was given in this story was so significant because it was given in nature, a natural setting. So it has to do with the Buddha's son. And um, many people don't realize the Buddha was a father. And for um, the first seven years of his son's life, he seems to have been away, getting enlightened. And, um, and then for the rest of his son's growing up, it seems like he was the primary parent. We don't know much about that because there was this monastic order and I don't know if other monastics could take care of the son or how it worked back then. But um, uh, the, his son was under his care. And there's a few stories of the Buddha uh, teaching his son, caring for his son as his, his son was growing, growing up. And um, his son became a monk. And uh, when his son was of age, we don't know what that means, but my assumption has been 19 or 20 years old. Uh, he'd been a monk for some years, been in the monastic environment for much longer. And uh, the Buddha uh, could see that his son was now ready for some deeper teaching, for some wisdom. And so he took his son, uh, got up one morning, and he said, let's go for a walk. It seems like a parental thing to do with the child. Let's go for a walk and we'll have a talk. And he took his uh, son deep into the woods to a place that we still know the name. We don't know where it is but um, the text called it Blind Men's Grove. Why it was called that, I don't know. But they say it was deep in the woods uh, in a grove of trees uh, of what's called the sal tree. And the sal tree in India is kind of like the uh, uh, redwood trees of California. They're quite majestic and large. And, um, and, um, and they have these, I don't know what they're called, they, uh, uh, what are they called? Like, last time... Banyan, yeah, they have these, these kind of roots. The roots kind of come from the, the trunks. What are they called? Banyan. Banyan. 
tree, yeah, but no, but it's a tall tree. Well, and they have this baluster, this uh, like a fence, a wall that comes down, but buttress that holds it up. Anyway, so you can kind of sit, tuck yourself in there and be all cozy in the corner of these wings that come down. And uh, so they took, he took his son in there, into the woods, and deep in the woods. And um, they sat there under these big majestic trees. And then he proceeded to um, ask his son uh, questions, kind of maybe Socratic, people call it Socratic method, I don't know if that's fair. But asked his son um, the... Um, uh, uh, are your eyes, are, are sometimes like, do what you see through your eyes, is that yourself? Is that who you really are? And his son said, no. Are your eyes who you really are? No. Is what you hear what you really are? No. Are your ears who you really are? No. Is what you smell who you really are? No. Is your nose who you really are? No. Is what you taste who you really are? No. Is your tongue who you really are? No. Is what you think who you really are? Maybe he paused then. <laughs> no. Is, your, is the thinking mind who you really are? No. And so it was, it was kind of went on like this for a while. So a question's about identity. He didn't ask him, who are you? Who's your true self or something like that? But he kind of did a kind of like guided meditation and pointed to all the things that uh, we can directly experience. So not an abstract idea, or, but rather in the, in the world of direct experience, what you can f- uh, feel, touch, taste, and all these things. Uh, does any of that thing qualify as your essential self? as your true self. And, uh, and the son kind of maybe turned his attention to each of these things and said no. And pretty soon there was nothing left to say yes to because the whole experiential world of self had been covered in these questions. And with that, the text say, his son's, uh, his son, his mind uh, uh, became disenchanted a great word, disenchanted, uh, because it implies that he was enchanted before. And uh, so kind of caught in a trance of self, perhaps, of identity, me, myself, and mine. And somehow he became disenchanted from the notion of holding on or identifying, this is who I am, creating an identity out of his his experience. And with that, uh, his clinging faded. And as his clinging faded, uh, he became free because liberated. So, uh, you know, it's kind of touching a father-son story <clears throat> with such a good outcome. <laughs> and uh, every father wishes that. I can't wait. My son turns 16, 19. And... But, um, but uh, I, think, I think it's significant that uh, this event happen in the, in the woods, deep in the woods, with these majestic trees, the Indian redwood trees, something like that, if you can imagine. What do you think the context of giving those teachings about not-self, of letting go of self-identity, what do you think the context of being in this natural setting, what that contributed to that teaching? 
What did that offer? What, what did the context offer for this event, this teaching and this little story? What do some of you think? In the back, you can pass the mic back. They could have just as well have taken him to the mall and sat him down there and had him gave him a little talk. Um, I was thinking a, a sense of connectedness. A sense of connectedness to? To the surroundings, to the natural world. And how would that help with his teaching or this understanding? Um, well, it kind of, uh, it seems like as the boundaries of self are dropping away, um, maybe kind of a unification uh-huh. with okay. the surroundings. Connection and the boundaries of self fall away, unification. Great, thank you. If you, if you use the mic, please. Wait, wait for the mic. Just that uh, some people can't hear otherwise. A sense of insignificance in front of such a large tree. That sounds scary to be insignificant. Is there you are uh, uh, a little bit serious? Insignificant can seem like a kind of a kind of like a dismissive term, or a, is there is there some other way of saying it that would make it seem more more helpful for this process of liberation? Less centered on oneself and more centered on the, the larger uh, world. Great, I think that works for me. Thank you. So. I was just wondering if he could get more in touch with his own true nature, or that's my experience when I'm in a natural setting. So it could be. The text says nothing about true nature. It just says, let go, let go, let go. But that, let, that profound experience of letting go, some people might call it a true nature, um, because there's, no, not, there's no, no limitation on our consciousness then. Another mic over there? Yeah. I'll take a shot at it. <laughs> Spaciousness came to mind. Spaciousness? Yeah. Uh-huh. So it wouldn't be so spacious probably in the mall. No, it wouldn't. Great. There wouldn't be the uh, busyness of being in the surroundings of humans, the mall, or anything like that, um, as a distraction or as something to compare yourself with. Uh, we're always comparing ourselves with other people, and the, our identity is often tied up in that. So being away from society sometimes is very helpful because it's easier for the mind to put down its comparative thinking and. Um, you know, which is kind of pervasive in human mind. Often, comparing ourselves to others and judging ourselves against others, and and um, many times our, our our creation of self-identity can happen in contrast to other people or in relationship to other people. So that whole operation of identification 
may sometimes can fall down, fall fall away in the wilderness. That's one of the reasons why some people like to going into nature, is the way that um, you know that the usual self preoccupation, significance of bhikkhakata, self centeredness falls away. Someone else. Also kind of reconnecting with the elements of what we are made of, Mm -hmm. the five elements, and they also exist much closer rather than your earth element and water, fire. So so the natural elements of the world are found in us as well, and and feeling that connection and that, uh, that we are nature is helpful. Good. So that's great. And um, so there's this process of going into the woods and questioning your self-identity to the point that you're willing to drop a lot of it. Is this appealing? Or is it, you know, better to go shopping? I see some some yeses. I see some people just what? <laughs> the um, so I think the argument or the the teaching that's been made down through the centuries in Buddhism is that uh, the natural environment is a very important support for the process of liberation. It's a very important support for the process of spiritual growth that something happens uh, in contact with the natural world that's harder to do in an urban environment or an environment where there's a lot of you know, the ordinary social concerns and things that people do. And so it's been a very common phenomena for the serious practitioners of, of Buddhism. Back in the old days, it was mostly monastics because the, that, was, you know, that was how the world was set up back then. Uh, that uh, many of them would go and live in the wilderness or live in the woods uh, for their practice. Or they would live on the interface between the wilderness and the urban environment. Uh, Like kind of live in the woods, but close enough because they couldn't couldn't keep food. They couldn't cook for themselves. So they were dependent on being able to go into urban areas or villages to get food. So they had to live close enough for that process. And uh, so this uh, very interesting dynamic of being a monastic, of, um, of especially the forest monastics, of feeling connected to the natural world <coughs> and uh, getting some of the benefits of that, at the same time uh, being completely dependent on their sustenance, on, uh, uh, on, on uh, the villages and towns and cities that were nearby. They couldn't separate themselves away from society but they could live in that. That's why they kind of lived in the interface between the wilderness and society. And so this, um, uh, so the idea of being dependent on others also does something to someone's mind. I mean, a lot of people like to be independent, take care of themselves. But the fact that your sustenance, your well-being depends on the people who support you, um, their, their generosity, their care, uh, does something to a practitioner's mind. And... Uh, what, are, what do you think some of the benefits are? In the same way as being in the wilderness can benefit this process of liberation, 
what do you think the, the uh, benefits might be in the process of spiritual growth or liberation uh, to realize, understand, and experience that uh, your welfare is dependent on other people taking care of you? Monastics have no f- savings. They don't go out and to the restaurant to buy food. Actually, the, the rule and the rules for monastics: if someone gives you food one day, then uh, you have to forfeit it at no- by noon, and uh, you can't uh, store it away in your cupboards and then get it the next day. You have to actually—you're not actually allowed to eat. Eat food that was given you one, one day. You're not allowed to eat it the next day. So you just—you know, just can't. You know, you're not allowed. So, so you're dependent on going out there with your bowl and hoping that someone gives you food the next day. So, how does this benefit a person? Any ideas? I see a hand way in the back. You can well, I would imagine that it would. Um, foster a sense of trust um, in the unfolding of whatever happens um, because of, you know, you're completely vulnerable to people's generosity. And so in response to that generosity, there would be a flood of um, of gratitude um, and loving kindness towards the people who are giving you sustenance, allowing you to live. But I also imagine that there would develop a large trust in the unfolding of what happens, Mm. the unfolding of life. Uh And and giving up a sense of control of believing that, you know, that um, the monastics or I would be in the center of... (laughs) Well, I guess that's the right answer. Um, (laughs) um, Would be at the center of the, the... uh, yeah, I think it would reduce my sense of importance um, my, and reduce my sense of self because as being held separate from, from other people, it would foster a sense of interconnectedness as well. Great, thank you. Um, I was going to say that too, that I think both ways um, uh, sort of dissolve that little self by... Um, being in an urban or being uh, with others and connecting with the others and the same with being in the wilderness and uh, sort of getting feeling in perspective you know that the little self kind of shrinks in both can shrink in both ways mm. and and not take on the importance mm, great that, that it thank often does thank you so, so another hand here to your right <coughs> I'm Noel, and um, your uh, talk has reminded me of um, this really bad experience I had on the John Muir Trail. Um, I was out there like by myself, and I thought it would be a wonderful experience, and it was. It turned out to be like, you know, I was just exhausted, and um, and I I missed I missed my life so much, and I couldn't wait to get back in a car. <laughs> and, you know, when my husband picked me up at the trailhead, 
I just never felt more love for anybody. Um, and when I came back, you know, I wanted to kiss my front door. And since then, a huge uh, sense of humility and gratitude and um, embarrassment uh, has filled my heart. Uh, and it has to do with learning from... Me too. <laughs> from learning from uh, just my experience of just letting it be out there for so long, alone, by myself, in great discomfort. So you benefited from that? Absolutely. Would you do it again? Hmm? Would you do it again? No. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Any other thoughts about this uh, dependence that the monastics have on others? Can we have the um, It seems to me that it's a daily practice in letting go, and a daily practice in non-attachment, because they, the monks are not supposed to um, well, they're deprived of the security of uh, knowing where their next meal is going to come from. So it's, it's um, yeah, that, that sense of letting go. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think it has a lot to do with it. Another interesting thing that, has, that I've seen in some monastics, and I felt it when I was a monastic, is that um, <clears throat> uh, if other people are going to support me with food and whatever I, the essentials are you need for monastic life, I'm, if I'm going to live a life of trust, not have any money and keep food and very few possessions, that uh, my welfare and well-being depends on the people around me who, who want their generosity to support me, I want to be worthy of that support. And so it was an inspiration for me uh, uh, to practice. I, I need to practice seriously here because you know, these people are not giving food just because I can sit around and you know, play cards. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, you know, this is, uh, I've got to take this seriously. <clears throat> and it, it was actually felt very, really good for me to have the seriousness, kind of gets, gets, you know, to kind of apply myself more in my practice because of this feeling of the mutual support from many people around me. Um, so I wanted to read a, a few passages from um, various monastics who've lived this forest life. Um, Ajahn Shah, who's a f- uh, famous teacher for our particular tradition. Whether a tree, a mountain, or an animal, it's all dharma. Everything is dharma. Where is the Dharma? Speaking simply, that which is not Dharma doesn't exist. Dharma is nature. If one sees nature, one sees Dharma. If one sees Dharma, one sees nature. Seeing nature, one knows the Dharma. One of the uh, nice things that uh, happened to me in the course of practicing in nature and natural world 
was um, at some point, before I went and practiced Buddhism and practiced Buddhism in nature, I had a very strong separation, uh, uh, bifurcation between the urban life and the natural life in the wilderness. And I really kind of disdained the urban life and felt like it was all about, you know, living, going back to nature, living in the woods. And uh, after my time in the practicing in, in uh, natural settings, um, there was a kind of letting go of uh, self-conceit, self-identification, letting go of that sense of separation and realizing that in a certain way everything is nature. And so when I came back to live in the city, I came back and saw the city in a different way. I certainly saw the problems of urban life, and, um, but I didn't hold myself separate from it or feel like this was um, not part of nature as well. Oddly enough, it's all nature. It's all dharma. And so in that way, it's all something to study and learn from. Uh, Ajahn Buddha Dasa, another monk in Thailand, very famous monk who lived in the woods. I, I saw him and I met him. I, in, in fact, I, um, um, he had a little little cabin that he lived in. But most of the day he sat, he was really old when I saw him, but he sat in a chair uh, um, in the woods outside his cabin. And you can go around and talk to him or see him. And Trees, rocks, sand, even dirt and insects can speak. This doesn't mean, as some people believe, that they are spirits or gods. Rather, if we reside in nature near trees and rocks, we'll discover feelings and thoughts arising that are truly out of the ordinary. At first, we'll feel a sense of peace and quiet, which may eventually move beyond that feeling to a, to a transcendence of self. The deep sense of calm that nature provides through separation from the troubles and anxieties that plague us in the day-to-day world functions to protect the heart and mind. Indeed, the lessons nature teaches us lead to a new birth beyond, the suffer- beyond suffering that results from attach- the suffering that results from attachment to self. Trees and rock, then, can talk to us. They help us understand what it means to be, what it means to cool down from the heat of our confusion, despair, anxiety, and suffering. Buddha Dasa also said this, the entire cosmos is a cooperative. The sun, the moon, and the stars live together as a cooperative. The same is true for humans and animals, trees, and the earth. Our bodily parts function as a cooperative. When we realize that the world is a mutual, interdependent, cooperative enterprise, that human beings are all mutual friends in the process of birth, old age, suffering, and death, then we can build a noble environment. If our lives are not based on this truth, then we'll all perish. And the last one is uh, Ajahn Amaro. Ajahn Amaro uh, is a monk now, lives in England, but he lived here for about 20 years in California and uh, come and taught for us from time to time. Um, the ignorance that human beings experience is largely based around the identification that we have with our bodies, with our personalities, our families, and our work. And because we're so woven into the, to those identity, identities in the midst of our family, in a role as a doctor, a teacher, a parent, child, as a personality among other personalities, it's very difficult to get any kind of perspective. 
Being in natural surroundings, you don't have to be anything. Your role as someone with a university degree is irrelevant to the lizards and trees. (laughs) You're just another thing in the forest, and those cultural identities fall into a much more diminished position in your consciousness. When you're around other people, it's hard to keep perspective. But life in the forest gives you that contrast where you can exist and not be anything. You are able to look at the flow of consciousness, thoughts, feelings, memories, ideas, without having to act on any of them. And you're there with the simplest elements of your being, breathing, feeling, the heat and cold, learning to live with the other creatures of the forest. You're moving from a person-centered perspective to one centered on nature. So, um, you know, the, the cosmos is a cooperative, and unless we cooperate, well, all kinds of problems can happen. Uh, if we don't cooperate with it, I think it's very hard to develop our, ourselves and develop ourselves to the point where we can let go of ourselves. And it's very hard to, um, it's very easy for us to cause a tremendous amount of harm um, to our environment. And it's a mutual relationship, right? It's cooperative. So if we, if, if our society harms our natural world, we'll be harmed as well. And, um, you know, and maybe it seems like a small thing, but uh, we need to have wilderness so that our hearts can find peace. So, you know, just, you know, it's one of the, not just, I think, you know, it's one of the ways that we, you know, I think it's one of the ways we discover who we are as human beings is to really feel the connection to this cooperative of the cosmos, the world. And without some ability to really feel that connection, to sense that connection, to understand that connection, I think it's much, much more harder to, uh, to realize who we are or who we're not, to be free. And it's also harder for us to live a sane life in this world, the cooperative world we live together. So I'm happy that this, you know, next week is supposed to be Earth Care Week. I don't know if any of you are coming here in this next week, but um, I, uh, I would ask you, uh, those of you who come here regularly, uh, maybe you're willing to uh, participate in this week and do something more than you normally would that uh, could be considered caring for this earth, caring for our natural world, trying to make a difference. The, um, as I say in the newsletter article that's, that just came out in the newsletter about the environment, uh, the, you know, kind of the strength, maybe the weakness too sometimes of Buddhism is the idea that um, it all starts with you. <laughs> and without you taking some responsibility, then it's hopeless. Don't expect other people to take responsibility. So maybe even in small ways this week, and maybe you can recycle more or you know, drive less, um, educate yourself about some of the environmental problems that are local in our communities. Um, make it, see, see if this week, in a small way, a big way, oh, that uh, it can be Earth Care Week for all of us. So, thank you. <laughs>